Hi everyone, my name is Mark and I'm one of the pastors here at Spark Church. Today we're continuing our study on the good news of Luke, narrowing in on the first 10 verses of the 7th chapter. Last week, Kevin gave a traditional message on the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Plain, depending on your perspective. Well, it really wasn't a traditional message. Kevin read 16 verses from Luke chapter 6, and then he chose to let it speak to you on its own terms. Now, I am all for the economy of speech, but I don't think I can let Luke chapter 7 speak for itself, not in the same way at least. There's something here I, I want to show you, and I'm going to have to do some unpacking to do it. Speaking of unpacking and packing, recently my wife Stacy and I moved from a house we'd been renting with friends to a much smaller place that we can call our own, and we've had to downsize. Now, we don't have much furniture or clothing, but we do have a lot of stuff. And in the garage, I had kept boxes upon boxes of things that I had packed in five previous moves over the last 20 years. With each of those moves, I had just thrown the contents of desk drawers and cabinets into boxes, moved those boxes into new locations, and didn't give any of it a second thought. Yeah, I'm one of those types of packers. Well, our new place doesn't have that much storage space. So I started going through those boxes of decade-old papers and notebooks, and I came upon an envelope addressed to me, written in my dad's handwriting. My dad doesn't write. My late mom wrote prolifically, and I have lots of cards and notes from her, but the only thing my dad has ever written to me was his name at the bottom of a birthday card. My dad is a man of humble action. His means of showing love, quiet acts of service. I can't count the number of times that he has worked in the driveway on someone's car to get it running the next day, or how often he would drive my mom to work for her graveyard shift at the hospital, or how often he would clean the house and yard so my mom would have something nice to come home to. One time when my sister was in college in LA, he called in sick to work on a weekday, drove five hours from San Francisco to show up at my sister's doorstep, had lunch with her for an hour, and then drove back home and he didn't say a word to my mom about it. And then there were the umpteenth times when he got up at 6 a.m., washed my car and my sister's car, and made sure both cars were running so that we could get to our high school classes on time before he took a shower, got dressed, and drove off to work at 7.30 a.m. My dad acts, and he speaks infrequently. So when he says something, he means it. And when he writes something, it has to be important. So a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting there holding this envelope that my dad had addressed to me. I opened it, and there was a letter that my dad had written to me when I was 16. I was a typical 16-year-old, thinking I knew everything and that my parents in the world didn't have that much to teach me. And so my dad wrote, Dear Mark, it's not easy to express how we feel towards you. All we know is we care, love you, and respect you. Remember, respect is something you have to earn. It's not given. We are doing what needs to be done to be good examples to you. And most of the time, we come up short. Sometimes we said things we didn't mean to. Please be patient. God is not done with us yet. We know you are doing your best in school. You're a pretty responsible young man, and we are pr proud of you. Sometimes you should check your attitude. We need your help around the house, and you need not to be told. We know that you are frustrated at times. You are raised from a different country with different customs, traditions, and beliefs. We believe you are lucky to be exposed to two different cultures. So listen, learn more, and benefit from your exposure. We know now. The older we get, the more we know that we know nothing. 
You can, if you believe you can, be anything you want to be. We love you unconditionally, mom and dad. Now, I don't ever remember reading this letter. Obviously, I had opened it, but I don't remember it at all. And other than being an insensitive, self-absorbed 16-year-old punk, I think the reason is that it's so different than how my dad communicated. To me, this letter was disconnected from his actions, how he really shows love and meaning. And so when I saw it, I guess I just dismissed it as irrelevant. Today's message is called, Why You Gotta Go Make Things So Complicated? As in 90s teen rocker Avril Lavigne's song, Why'd you have to go and make things so complicated? And after making that lapse in judgment, let me read one simple story from Luke chapter 7. After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, if you've heard this story before, you might be thinking as I have, ah, this is a story of healing. Jesus comes and heals this person for the sake of his master. And what faith that master had, greater than any in Israel. Great story. God is awesome. Thus ends our teaching. Let us pray. That is how the story would normally be taught in most Sunday schools and children's programs. And at face value, there's nothing wrong with that. It's true. Jesus healed people, and faith is important to that. But we know that God is not that simple. We know the world and the people within it are not that simple. Let's see how complicated this really is, and let's try to connect those dots. First, who is the centurion? The centurion is a soldier, a commander of a military unit of 60 to 100 soldiers, a century of soldiers. And he's a Roman. Remember that for five centuries, Israel was not its own independent state, but one held under the control of empires, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Macedonia. And Israel bristled under that control with resentment for their overlords and disdain for Jews who collaborated with them. Their interactions were punctuated by violent revolts and uprisings. And at the time of Jesus, the land of Israel was under the control of another empire, Rome with a focus on law and order and keeping the peace. We don't have an equivalent of that in our experience, so let's imagine that the Jews were living in a police state. And given what we've been seeing and hearing in our own society, that might not be too hard for some of us to imagine. This centurion living in this lakeside village 
was a representative of the oppressive system that Jews were raiding for God to deliver them from. This centurion is the bad guy. And so you would assume that the people of Capernaum would harbor some level of hatred towards this man. Not so. The elders of Capernaum, the leaders of the community, came to Jesus on the centurion's behalf. Well, they were coerced, right? They were forced to do this, coming to Jesus out of fear. Or maybe the elders were collaborators, working with the empire that keeps God's people under lock and key. Not so. They pleaded with Jesus earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us the synagogue. So this centurion, the local symbol of the oppressive system that Jews wanted to overthrow, loves our nation, built our place of worship. Who is this? Is he just one of the good ones? Jesus now goes with the elders to heal the centurion's servant. But as he approached the house, the centurion sent friends, philos in Greek. He sent friends, not servants, to Jesus. And these friends told Jesus what the centurion believed. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. The Roman military leader holding real power over this village and this region is humble. And the centurion goes on to basically say, I have power and I have authority and I recognize those who have it as well. And Jesus, I know you have both. So say the word and let my servant be healed. In other words, I love this nation and I respect its people's beliefs. And I believe that the God they worship works in you. This military leader who holds real power in this community is going to all these lengths for a lowly servant? Who is this guy? Jesus got it. When he heard these things, he marveled at him. In the book of Luke, the Greek word for marveled is only used 13 times. Every time it is used to describe how people react to something God has done or something Jesus has done. The writer of Luke reserves the word for God and Jesus, except here. There's something special about the centurion. And here Jesus is reacting to what the centurion had done. And thus Jesus' response. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So Jesus is marveling at the centurion's faith. But as he does it, he takes a passing shot at the Jewish people. None of you have shown as much faith in God as this outsider, this non-Jew, this person who associates himself with our oppressor. Now, this doesn't seem like much, but it actually means a lot given what happens next. For the sake of time, we won't read through it. But the next eight verses of Luke 7 tell the story of another healing. Jesus goes to a nearby town and encounters a widow who has just lost her only son. And Jesus raises this young man from the dead. In isolation, it's just another cool story of healing. But there's more to this. So jump back with me to earlier in the book of Luke, where Jesus is speaking at the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus reads scripture from the book of Isaiah, speaking about a messenger sent and anointed by God to declare liberty to the oppressed. And then Jesus brings up two stories of, from the Old Testament about two people being liberated. Naaman, a military leader of a kingdom threatening Israel, and a widow whose only son had died and was resurrected by a prophet. You're seeing this, right? By citing these two stories, Jesus essentially says to the gathered Jewish congregation, this message isn't just for you. 
It's for the non-Jews as well. Those who will be freed by God will include widows in need when we Jews are in just as much need. Those who will experience God's liberty will include military leaders who oppress us at a time when we Jews need to be set free. Well, that set the congregation off. They were set to throw Jesus off a cliff for that statement. What happened? To paraphrase Chris Rock talking about religion, people only want to hear the good stuff. Life eternal, a place in God's heaven. But as soon as you hear that the good stuff is also meant for those who hate you, you freak. And that's what happened. In Nazareth, people heard that freedom is coming for non-Jewish people. The people become a lynch mob. In Capernaum, people see that freedom can come for a non-Jewish person. The people celebrate. I hope you're starting to connect the dots. And I hope adding this one more thing will help. Now, going back to the story of the centurion, it begins thusly. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people. What sayings? It's the Sermon on the Mount. There in chapter 6, Jesus spoke of God's blessing upon the marginalized, love for one's enemies, which can require self-sacrifice or turning the other cheek, judging other by God's standard, which can include empathy for others as you acknowledge your own hypocrisy, defining a good person as not simply having a good heart, but also allowing that good heart to guide their actions, and accordingly, hearing and acting upon Jesus' good news. So why does the author of Luke include the story of the centurion immediately after the Sermon on the Mount? This could be why. Because we can see that God has blessed the marginalized of the village through the centurion. He loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. Then we can also see that the centurion has love for his enemies, citizens of a state that has rebelled against this empire to the point that he turns the other cheek and acts beneath his status, his governing position, and he asks those under his control, doesn't command them, asks them to do him a favor. He asks them to go to an itinerant preacher to heal his servant. Then we can also see that by asking for this act of rescue, the centurion acknowledges the hypocrisy of his position. I have the authority to order people to do things, but as much as I stand in that position of authority, I cannot order my servant to be healed. I cannot order God to heal him. I am not in control. And then we can see that the centurion has not simply stood upon having a good heart and wanting and wishing and hoping for what is best for Capernaum. The centurion has stepped up, gone beyond what is required of him, and personally served this community. The centurion, the bad guy, is embodying all that Jesus is asking of us to love those who might hate us, to use our own power and influence for the betterment of others, to see ourselves and judge ourselves as God does, which means letting go of our preconceived notions of right and wrong, to humble ourselves and see ourselves not as masters of the universe, but as a person equal to all people, regardless of their lot in life, standing before God. Again, remember that to most people in the society, the centurion represents all that is wrong with their world. And Jesus chose to use him as the example of what could be good about their world. And I think he did it to show us that the world and the people within it are not as clear-cut, as black and white, and as simple as we wish they were. Now, I told you a story at the beginning of all this about my father writing a note to me and me not understanding it at all. Now, I never saw my father as a bad person, but I have seen him as the enemy, standing in the way of what I thought was right. 
What I didn't realize then, and what I realize now, is that this letter is a verbal description of all that my father had tried to show me for my entire life through his actions. I got lost in the medium of his expression so that I was unable to see the meaning within it. The letter was my father's sermon on the mount to me. His actions always pointed to loving God and loving his neighbor and loving me. But this was his declaration of what he had hoped for my life. And the opening sentence makes it clear. It's not easy to express how we feel towards you. In other words, my dad was telling me, our relationship is complicated. Our lives are complicated. But I've been trying to show you what I want for you through my actions. And now I'm putting that into words. This is what Jesus was doing in Luke 6 and 7. But he did it in reverse. First, he described how he wanted us to live with one another, and then he presented an example of how that description could actually be lived out in the form of the centurion, a complicated individual wearing many hats and trying to do his best to love his neighbor with all of that. Now, if you're looking at the story of the centurion and you're looking for an application for your own life, there are all sorts of directions that you can take. One big question you could ask, what didn't Jesus do? In our story, Jesus didn't reprimand the centurion for associating with an empire that dominated Judea and other peoples with an iron fist. Jesus doesn't criticize the elders for collaborating with their oppressors. Jesus was asked to do one thing, say the word and let my servant be healed. And he did it. He just addressed the problem presented directly to him, and then he moved on. Now, if you're going to try to apply that to our current circumstances, Does that mean that we shouldn't call out others and shouldn't apply God's standards to their behavior? No, Jesus did do that, just not at this moment with these people. Does that mean that we shouldn't push back against individual prejudice and collective systematic injustice where we see it? No, Jesus did do that, just not in this story at this time. So what does that mean for us? If Jesus does not lay out a single clear approach to dealing with injustice throughout his life, then what should we do when we encounter it? I can't give you a clear, unambiguous answer. And that is the beauty and the difficulty of our faith. Jesus' teaching isn't cut and dried, paint by the numbers, basic instructions before leaving earth. It's not the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's complicated and it's nuanced, just like each of us are, just like life is. There are principles within Jesus' teaching to draw out from these stories. Now, can I apply these principles to all similar circumstances and cases across the board? Or do I have to use this wisdom drawn from the story, wisdom passed down from the Holy Spirit to me and others throughout history, and God's guidance in real time to figure out what is the best choice? And then do I have to deal with the consequences if I was wrong about all of it? There are a lot of things to draw from the story, and I do believe that all of this has major applications in how we live our lives with our loved ones, with strangers, with those opposing political views. It affects how we vote, who we vote for, whether we should show mercy upon someone who made tremendous mistakes, or whether we should take our part in canceling them out. These are all legitimate questions, but that's not the point of the sermon. The point of the sermon is to say, every person's story in the Bible, in history, in our homes, in our news articles, in the streets, in our community, every single person, 
each of their stories has so much more complexity than we can see, and often more complexity than we allow for. Centurion just isn't the bad guy. Neither is he simply the good guy. Jesus does care about the marginalized, and he does appreciate what the centurion has done with his authority. And he knows the centurion could have done a lot more. And with a word, Jesus could have called out that centurion the task for the bad things he's done in Rome's name. But with a word, Jesus simply heals the servant that the centurion highly valued. Did Jesus do enough? Continuing with Kevin's theme of self-interpretation from last week, I'm going to take my hands off the steering wheel and I'm asking you, what is God telling you that this story means? How does God want you to apply this to your life? And I have to put my hands back on the steering wheel one last time because so many of us might not consider this. How does God want you to view this man? In a way, we could view him as a modern-day centurion, a public servant clothed in power and authority that are meant to be wielded with care. This man's actions affect so many of us in a visceral, intimate way. This man is also a husband, a father, a son, a friend. This man is as capable of the best and the worst that we as a people have to offer. He is to be held accountable for the good that he has done and for how he has fallen short, just like all of us. How does God want you to view this human being? For some of us, it's very simple. His good actions outweigh any errors in judgment. For others of us, it's also very simple. He represents the enemy. In fact, he is the enemy, and we should treat and think of him accordingly. But is it really that simple? Is it really that simple for God? And if it's not, what are we called to do with our words, with our actions, with our vote? And I'm going to tell you how to vote, just as I'm going to tell you how to live your life with justice and mercy and love for your neighbor and for your God. What does that look like? You tell me. I can tell you what is simple. All are welcome at Jesus' table. Gathering together for communion can be complicated. We do ask for love and respect and compassion for those gathered around the table, but those aren't required by God. If it was, I wouldn't be welcome all the time. Jesus didn't come solely for the loving and respectful and compassionate. He came for all of us. So if you want to join me, please gather your bread, your wine, or whatever facsimile you might have of them, and please join me at the Lord's table. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed, and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.